Welcome to Trainers Talking Truths. This is an ISSA podcast dedicated to exploring the fitness industry and uncovering the whys and hows of personal training. To do that, we'll talk directly to the industry experts and certified trainers. We'll dig into fitness programming, business tactics, nutrition, and more. You'll even hear from current training clients who offer insight from the other side. We've got the fitness industry covered, so turn up the volume and enjoy the drive. Hello, world. Welcome back for another ISSA podcast, Trainers Talking Truths. It's your co-host, Jenny Scott, here with my favorite co-host, Dan the Mandarin. We have got a really great episode today. I am super excited with our guest that we have today. I, a fellow podcaster, but the really, really smart kind. We have with us Mr. Eric Helms, PhD, CSCS. How are you, Eric? I'm doing well. And you know, the funny thing that you mentioned CSCS, do you know what my first ever certification was? What? It was ISSA 2005. Nice. I love it. That's awesome. (laughs) I mean, as as a young bodybuilder or at the time aspiring bodybuilder, when when you look at who's behind the organization, I I had to go there. I I needed to confirm all my biases and be told that strength training is is the only way. Um, But uh, no, ISSA has a unique place in my heart as the my first certification 17 years ago. That's like a whole nearly adult person. It wow. is. It is. You are an adult person times two. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a very nice way of saying that I'm old, but I'll take it. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, it happens to the best of us, right? <laughs> Unfortunately it does, you know, but, but really honored to be on. Thanks guys for having me. And I'm looking forward to chatting. Yes. And I, I love it. As soon as we got on, before we started recording, you started speaking and I was like, oh my gosh, his voice sounds just like it does on his podcast. <laughs> I don't know why I expected it to be different. I'm a weirdo. I don't know. I, I'm like, my face hurts from smiling so hard right now. I'm super excited. Um, oh, there's Dan. Hey, Dan. Yeah, I've got connection issues, folks. So Jenny, you're going to be, you might be picking up a little more of the load here today. That's all right. Gotta love technology. We'll, we'll be all right. Um, all right. Well, let's dive on in, Eric. I'm going to have you take us way back. Start from the beginning and tell us about your journey in the fitness industry. You told us you started with an ISSA certification, which is awesome to hear. But what got you started and how did you get from there to where you are now? Yeah, let's see. So I got certified in 05, but I think the first time that I really considered personal training as as an avenue was... I was in the Air Force. That's what I did out of high school. So I didn't have the uh, the funds or the, the family that could send me straight to, to college or university. Um, and, you know, so Uncle Sam, you know, was, was the, the family member who, who supported my, my nice. education with the old GI Bill. Um, so I spent four years in the Air Force. And my original intention was to kind of stay working in, in that sector. But um, I very quickly realized that I was... Uh, not, not the right personality for staying in the military, let's just put it that way. But um, I did act as a, uh, what they call a physical, physical conditioning mentor. And I, I led like the group PT um, and I was reasonably fit. And that was, you know, I was like, okay, cool. Uh, and I enjoyed it. It's a place to excel. So I think that, that kind of rewards you. And while I was in the military, I went through a relatively rough patch towards the end uh, of when I was in. I had a uh, friend who was struggling with something pretty significant and I was kind of stuck. I couldn't go help them. Um, I was looking for an outlet and fortunately I landed on a positive outlet of lifting weights and it started with kind of an obsessive tilt, something that was, you know, a little, maybe a little more masochistic, if you will, uh, but eventually became something positive. Um, 
And I really got bit by the iron bug and I wanted to really just take it as far as I could. And it resulted in me thinking about wanting to do something competitive in starting sports. So there's a lot of options now in 2022, whether you want to do CrossFit, you know, strongman, bodybuilding, weightlifting, you name it, uh, you know, weightlifting themed TikTok dances or whatever. Um, but there was no TikTok then. So the best option wasn't available. Um, so instead I decided to start training for and competing in powerlifting and bodybuilding. So I started that process, lifting weights in 04, getting serious about it and, um, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my career. I was like, well, you know what, let me, let me just take this as far as I can. And like I said, first certification was ISSA first job, uh, shout out to the YMCA in Augusta, Georgia. That was uh, where I was stationed. Uh, my wife and I moved out of Georgia in 06, but my first job I held was a little over a year as a personal trainer in the YMCA. That's where I cut my chops. Nice. Um, and uh, that was a great experience. Um, and that was the first place I got to go to a natural bodybuilding competition. Um, Ronnie Hilaire, who's a, a legend of the WNBF, he has, I think, what's called the I can't remember the name of the show, but he hosts a, a natural bodybuilding show in Augusta. And I got to attend that as like a test judge. I didn't actually pass the judging, ironically. Um, <laughs> so the way, the way it works uh, in the WBF is you have to get at least like, I think, 80 or 90 percent agreement with the, the real judges who have more experience. I'm an NPC judge, so I know. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so, so you know how it goes. So I did great for the for all the divisions except for figure. And then I got like 70%. So I was clearly just a little uber, uber focused on, on my own interest at the time. But anyway, so I attended that show. I thought that is awesome. That's what I want to do. I also got to do a little unsanctioned push pull meet that they held at the YMCA. And I was like, just completely became obsessed with uh, bodybuilding and starting sport. And I realized that I wanted to train those people as well. Um, and I mean, we're all trainers. How many times do you meet young trainers who want to train athletes? And you're like, well, you haven't trained anyone. Like this is, that's, <laughs> that, that's great. 19 year old, but um, just because you played you know, sports in high school and you like watching them on TV and you have a certification that you got over the weekend doesn't mean that you're qualified to train the Mets or, or Ronnie Coleman. So <laughs> maybe get some experience. So I was uh, aware enough that I, I needed to, to get that experience. And I just started attacking it from all angles. So I was competing. Um, I was training anyone who, who I could, you know, I worked in the, in, in, when we moved to California, I worked at a, a studio called fitness together, which is a franchise that you guys might be familiar with. Yeah. Um, and really started working on my education as well. So I went back to school. I say back because in the air force, I spent like two years learning a language. That was what my profession was, but anyway, and everything was just starting to pour into that. And eventually it turned into becoming a, um, a business owner. I started a uh, 3D muscle journey with yeah. fellow uh, Californian uh, natural bodybuilders, Brad Nimitz, Jeff Alberts, and Alberto Nunez. Um, and that got started right at the end of 09, beginning of 2010. And there was a period where we were just trying to get known on the scene. There was really at that time, man, there was Dr. Joe Konzuski. Uh, and there was Blaine Norton and that was like it for online natural bodybuilding coaching, which is, you know, a couple niches, if you will. But, uh, but yeah, leading up to that, I was getting my, my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, uh, the, the, the silent, uh, listener on this podcast right now, John Bauer, he and I both taught in Sacramento at 
uh, Bryan University, which is like has a applied associate's degree in personal training, which is a great experience. Um, and I just really tried to get as much rich uh, educational, hands-on and personal experience and client experience as I could to move into a position where I started primarily working with uh, physique athletes and strength athletes. And that's really started full force around 2011. I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, a young man who, or, well, I should say he's, he's married and has kids now, but he was a young man named Matt Ogus. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, relatively uh, popular online personality, um, great natural bodybuilder, good guy. And uh, he was just a young kid. I want to say he was 19 or 20. And he reached out to us because he was also from Sacramento, the, the Sacktown connection here. And he was like, hey, I want to do a show. My last show, I wasn't in shape. I'd like some assistance. And by the way, do you mind if I vlog this on YouTube? And I was like, I don't know what that means. Sure. Um, <laughs> and then I noticed that, you know, every week when he sent me his update for his, his like how things were going and the spreadsheet and all that stuff, he'd send me his, his video going through the mandatory poses, which is like how we do posing practice and also assess the physique, physique progress. And we normally do them as unlisted YouTube videos, but he just did them on his YouTube channel. And I think I looked down one time and I just, my brain couldn't comprehend the number of views it had because it was like a four or five digit number, which, oh, wow. yeah, 2010, 2011, 2012, YouTube, that, that, that was, those are huge numbers. So I was like, what? Fast forward about six to eight months, we had like a 300 person waiting list. So it oh, wow. really changed the game for us. And it gave us the opportunity to have as many clients as we wanted in, in, in that, the kind of uh, recreational and competitive bodybuilding space. And um, it's kind of been that way for the last 10 years now. And I think the last time I did in-person personal training would have been uh, 2012 before I moved to New Zealand to pursue my academic career, which now I do in a blended role with everything else I do. I'm a research fellow at the Auckland University of Technology and the Sports Performance Research Institute, where I do um, research on what I describe as uh, physique and strength sports science, um, trying to help athletes have sustainable careers and looking at both enhancing performance, but also ensuring that they're doing it in a way that is, uh, you know, mentally and physically healthy. Um, and that's me. That's awesome. And Auckland, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is in New Zealand. So yes. what a cool place to live. <laughs> yeah. I went from Oakland to Auckland, you know, where I was born to where I now live. So, yeah. There you go. It sounds like fate to me. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Very cool. I do have a random question about New Zealand, though. Are there a lot of sheep? There are if you get outside of Auckland. Auckland's a big city. It's, you know, the largest city in the, in the country. But yeah, if you, if you go out and like into the, the, uh, the suburbs or the more agricultural areas, then absolutely there. There's, there's, there's heaps of sheep. If so, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. that's random, but I've always, that's like what you see when you see pictures of New Zealand. It's like green hills and sheep. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the Lord of the Rings and sheep. Those those are the uh, things that, that come to mind if you have not been here. I mean, I and they're for, for good reason. I mean, those are those are iconic aspects of the of the country. I, I still owe my wife a trip to New Zealand, uh, and I think I'm coming up on nine years that I have not fulfilled that promise. I promised her a trip to New Zealand and another diamond for her ring if she supported me in my first Ironman. <laughs> I'm a welcher, folks. I'm a welcher. I got I to gotta kick down. Uh, somehow I've bought 11 years or whatever it's been. Uh, still married, though. <laughs> no. See if I can squeeze a few more out. So, Eric, that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And 
what one of the, the the common questions someone would ask, or something that I certainly always want to learn more about, is you being a natural bodybuilder and strength competitor and training folks like that. What are some of the common mistakes or misconceptions about building strength and muscle mass? And and I want to separate them, so maybe you can talk about the difference between them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I think some of the most common mistakes are typically around uh, the mindset in my opinion, and this is relatively subjective. This isn't like, well, actually hypertrophy and maximum strength, but, you know, so relatively subjective is that people tend to take a very kind of all or nothing approach when they're initially interested in competitive strength or physique sport. Um, Something about um, the culture around bodybuilding, especially and to a lesser degree, but still there in, in powerlifting, it attracts kind of extreme personalities. And that tends to be your, your biggest asset and also your biggest potential threat to your to your career in my experience it's like a double-edged sword you can turn it on you can be obsessive you can be like i'm in contest prep mode or i'm you know i'm going to go in there and do whatever it takes to 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 increase my squat Um, but it can also be what leads you down some relatively disordered eating patterns burnout and injury um or the equivalent of a bodybuilder's injury which is like you know an eating disorder (laughs) so um and I speak from personal experience and coaching experience with that. So I think learning to temper that is, is the difference between a novice competitor who is risking burning out of either sport or getting hurt and someone who can make a career out of it, being able to, to find a way to blend it with their life, integrate it, and, uh, and find a more, what I would describe, a sustainable approach to, to physique sport and strength sport. So that's the biggest misconception. It's not just go hard or go home typically means you're going to end up going home sooner than later. Um, and yeah. And as far as, uh, strength and physique sport, the differences, you know, they, they have a lot of similarities, but they also have a lot of differences. There's a lot of crosstalk between the, especially the powerlifting and bodybuilding community. Um, but the process of gaining, uh, strength or putting on muscle mass are, are somewhat distinct. Obviously they both require uh, resistance training. Um, but, the, the purpose is obviously different and that should result in differences in training. And, um, you know, I think the typical kind of meme of, of what is powerlifting training, what is bodybuilding training is more, you know, like metabolic, higher rep machines, targeted exercises, more volume in the bodybuilding space. And then it's, you know, your sets of five low reps, more specific squat bench deadlift, and that makes sense when you think about it, because the, the, the primary thing that is uh, dependent uh, or that uh, impacts strength is, is building the skill. And if you're going to get on the platform and do a single heaviest possible repetition on a squat, bench, and deadlift, then obviously you should be mimicking that in terms of the specificity. But the degree to how much specificity you have, that's a you know, huge ongoing debate in the community. Um, and I think the, the interesting part is they're not wholly separate because you know, what actually makes a force production occur is contractile tissue. So you actually do need to build some of that. And if we look at some of the, uh, the research, cross-sectional research, admittedly, so it's not super high quality data, but it is pretty convincing when you look at the, the numbers, when you look at elite level powerlifters, do a cross-sectional analysis, then look at either cross-sectional area, muscle thickness, uh, or, or totally body mass, and then you look at the relationship between that and their performance, you see that higher levels of muscle mass discriminate between higher and lower competitors in, in powerlifting. 
and strongman and weightlifting. And we've got some pretty good data across all that. So um, if you are someone who wants to become a better power lifter, yes, you need to spend a lot of time building the skill of strength, but you also have to kind of balance that between building muscle mass. Um, and the challenging aspect is that we know that like sets of three, like if you do a three by three, that would probably build more strength in a vacuum if we were to be very reductionist and say three by 10, right? Um, but we also know that three by 10 would build more muscle mass. So it puts you in a position where I would probably say elements of periodization become somewhat mandatory if, if the goal is to, to optimize your strength progress over time, where you have to, you have to pay your dues at, at building some muscle and you have to pay your dues building some strength. And that's something that bodybuilders don't really have to do. You know, you, we've seen many champion bodybuilders who have got by with, uh, I wouldn't even say got by, who have been successful um, with largely machine-based high rep work, more quote unquote metabolic pump work. And then we've also seen plenty who have incorporated elements of powerlifting, but you don't typically see one dominant philosophy that's like, oh, they always are bigger, you know? Yeah. So for every Ronnie Coleman, there's a Jay Cutler. For every uh, Franco Colombo, there, there's an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of deal. And um, you can see that, that the way I describe it is that hypertrophy or putting on muscle mass it has much broader constraints than, than strength sport. You know, it's, it's very challenging to be like, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a power lifter, but I'm going to avoid squat bench and deadlift, And I'm only going to train, you know, and, and, and six reps or higher. And you just end up being a, a bad power lifter. I mean, you're allowed to compete. We're not going to stop you, but it's very challenging uh, to like, you know, in, in the, in the community, like people think like, you know, Boris Shaiko and Westside are polar opposites. They couldn't be any more different in training. But as soon as you step outside of the powerlifting community, it's like, yeah, they're all doing squat bench deadlift variations all the time. Like, I, don't, I mean, <laughs> I guess you're different, but, but to me, someone who's, you know, just a Joe off the street, uh, I can't see the difference. It's only within the community. Do you, when you know the training systems and the philosophies that underpin it, can you see the differences, but it's really on a very truncated scale in the grand scheme of training for all sport. So yeah. Long answer to a short question. Hopefully it was helpful. Yeah. And I think there's also another side to that too. The people who are looking at hypertrophy and want to build muscle mass, they look at it like, oh, it's not, I'm not going to focus on the same variables. They get so stuck on those variables, right? I'm not going to mm. focus the same variables as somebody who's doing strength where they're at five reps and, you know, 90 to hundred percent of their max, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm going to stick to 70 to 85% of my max and go for volume. But when you're building muscle mass and you're getting that result of hypertrophy, you're going to get stronger. Like you kind of yes. have to get stronger along the way. And I remember you talking about that in a couple of your podcast episodes, because um, admittedly, I've listened to pretty much all of them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you have to get a little bit stronger because if you are progressively overloading, that 75 to 80% is not going to be 75 to 80% in three months if you're doing it right. Mm. right? It's going to be less. So ultimately, you're still getting stronger. And uh, speaking of the variables, of course, there's variables that science has told us for hypertrophy fat loss, well, not necessarily fat loss, but like building strength and hypertrophy. Let's look at those two. Do people need to be really, really caught up in those variables or is there a little bit of uh, nuance, a little bit of uh, wiggle room in those variables or should they really stick with what they learn? Great question. Yeah. And I think, you know, it depends on, on like, when did you learn this? Because this is actually something that has changed in the last decade a fair amount. You know, mm -hmm. like when I first got my, my certifications, uh, I, I didn't stick with ISSA. So I do have to feel like I have to admit that I got an ACE certification, then I got NASM, an and then like most, you know, insecure 
personal trainers before they get their degree. I got like 10 others and really just spent hey. a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> I had many, many letters after my name True. to try to feel adequate compared to some more experienced uh, people I was working with. But um, anyway, uh, so anyway, you know, I, I learned many times that the, the quote unquote hypertrophy rep range is either, you know, eight to 12 or six to 12 or six to 15 or something in there. Mm -hmm. And that was often presented as there is a unique advantage of this repetition range rather than a more nuanced perspective of, hey, sets that last at least this long, you know, are going to produce enough of a stimulus if the effort is high enough. Uh, and, but after that point, which is where we're at today, you know, on a set by set basis, a set of six or a set of 12, it's probably going to produce a similar amount of hypertrophy, which is actually what we've come to, to find today that once a set lasts long enough and it's of a sufficient, uh, effort, if you will, like proximity to failure, whether that sets 20, 25, 15, 10, five or six, it will probably produce a similar net hypertrophy on average. Your mileage may vary. You're not a mean, you're an individual if you're listening. So you might respond better to something than someone else. But when we look at group mean averages and changes, that seems to be the case. And that was not the way it was presented in, say, uh, the mid 2000s. It was, hey, you want to do, you know, five by five versus three by 10, three by 10 is probably better. When in actuality, they're, they're probably quite similar. You might get even a little more out of five by five. Um, and then if we go back further than that, uh, you would see, uh, around the 90s, if you look at the work of, you know, uh, Bill Kramer, um, a pretty, pretty well-known sports scientist, did a lot of work, head of the NSCA for many years. He had what's called the hormone hypothesis or what has been characterized this way. And it was essentially, hey, you, we need to be doing compound movements. We need to be doing moderately high reps, you know, 10s, 15s, 8s, things like that. And we also need to take short rest intervals because these, these factors altogether are going to result in increases in growth hormone, you know, during training that's above and beyond doing low reps and growth hormone. Well, it's just like its name. It, it's a hormone that makes you grow. Right. And like, yeah, like absolutely. Like that helps you go through puberty and stuff like that. And it's part of maturation, but growth hormone is also, uh, has a lot to do with the metabolic output of exercise. You know, you see it almost perfectly tracks with lactate. And if you understand the physiology of it, you understand why that is. And lactate, perfectly tracks with the, the work that you do. So if you use larger muscle mass movements, like compound exercises, you do higher reps, but not too high where the load comes down and the total work actually decreases and you take short rest intervals. Yeah. You're, you're going to, you're going to require your body to have to uh, release a lot of endogenous stores of energy and produce a lot of metabolic output. And you're going to see these large spikes in growth hormone and small spikes in testosterone. But when you really look at it, they're short term in nature. Uh, they're within what we have normally described as diurnal variation of these hormones. And while they correlate with, with growth, doing more volume, it also seems to correlate with hypertrophy. So we're basically in the nineties and the early two thousands and up to the mid two thousands, we mistakenly looked at a correlation and assumed it was ca causatory, you know, uh, and, and not everything that correlates is causative. Like you could correlate putting chalk on your hands to getting stronger, right? You know, every time I put chalk on my hands, yeah. I get stronger. Well, that's because you go to the gym and you lift weights, right? So it, it really depends on, on what variable we're focusing on and what pattern we're recognizing. And yes, when you do more volume, we've now come to understand that seems to be a, an important variable for inducing hypertrophy. And if you are doing the things that were described 
Yes, it is because you did more volume, not necessarily because of the hormone response. And when we look at lower rep, but not super low rep, matched volume protocol, some of the work that, that Schoenfeld did in his PhD, uh, some of the work that's been done by many, many labs now over the last 20 years, we see that it's not a specific rep range. It's not a specific group of exercises. It's not a specific rest period. It is the total work you do and whether it is at a high enough effort and it targets a specific muscle, the muscle will grow. And that's essentially what it all comes down to. And when you realize that, you get out of this kind of uh, very narrow constraints of like, got to rest 60 to 90 seconds. I got to do eight to 12. Uh, I got to you know do these compound exercises and then some isolation work. And that's hypertrophy. It's more like, okay, so if I accumulate sufficient volume and a sufficient effort for a given muscle group, and the other stuff beyond that probably is a, a minor variable at best, I can grow. Now, all of a sudden, coming back to your original question, Dan, you can construct a way of training that satisfies both the goals of strength and hypertrophy with sacrificing less because now you don't have these artificial constraints that aren't there. And on the strength side of things, we also have come to understand that specificity is very powerful. Um, some recent work that's been done on the minimum effective dose uh, shout out to Andrew Lackis Korakakis or PAC, my good buddy. He's a, a researcher who's also a powerlifter, uh, just completed his PhD. Um, he found that just doing a single rep at near max, three times per week on bench, twice, sorry, uh, twice per week on squat. No, I got it right. And once a week on deadlift was nearly as effective as a full blown periodized program with like 10 times the volume uh, in, in powerlifters, at least in a short term period in a small group. And he's wow. done follow-up work with that, uh, just showing how powerful those singles can be. Um, now, they seem to start to lose their effectiveness, at least in powerlifters who are pretty well-trained folks after five, six weeks. That may be because we're actually seeing like a regression in size or plateaus. But I think if we start to understand that I can get this, this practice work and then I can do this hypertrophy work, um, you can find a way to reduce the amount of time investment and be more efficient. With, with both of these aspects. So for myself, who I compete in both strength sport and physique sport, and a lot of my uh, clients and a lot of the athletes at 3DMJ who are interested in both those goals, or at least they're bodybuilders who do powerlifting in the offseason or similar, we can do things like, hey, let's come in and in a more bodybuilding focused phase, but we don't want to lose strength. We're going to start our session as warming up to a single at say 80 to 90% on the squat bench or deadlift. And then we'll get into our other exercises. It's a three to five, maybe eight minute time investment, depending on how many warm sets you're, you're doing, how, how strong you are. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the workout is, you know, just pump it up, baby. So it's, 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 it's a nice way of once you understand the true key variables behind the adaptations you're trying to accomplish, you can be far more efficient and it, it, it reduces some of the, the, the perceived constraints you had that would prevent you from having uh, multiple goals like that. Um, so I think that that stuff's pretty cool. And um, when we understand that, you know, specificity is important, but it does come at a cost. Um, and uh, like, if you were to take that to the nth degree of, well, I'm just going to come in twice a day and work up to heavy singles. Now you get into things like monotony, strain, injury risk, burnout. Um, and now you're actually taking away from the time where you might be more efficiently building muscle. So it's almost like, what's the best program to make you strong in one month? Maybe that might be it, but if we want to be strong long-term and do a competition in three, four, five years, then we're going to have to incorporate some element of, of bodybuilding. And now we're looking again at 
something that might be akin to periodization. Nice. Yeah. So there's definitely some flexibility there. And the, the biggest takeaway from what you just said for me anyway, is that there's wiggle room, right? Yes. Yeah. You have to learn the variables. Yes. You need to know, like, of course, for your certification, for your test, whatnot. But then when you get down to real life, like our bodies are all going to be different. Um, mm. so there is wiggle room and you can train for more than one thing at once, <laughs> which is nice. Um, mm. I love that. Um, as far as a lot of people that we come across, and I'm sure you do too, uh, as far as personal trainers, especially new ones to the game, um, have trouble with programming, like creating yeah. programs. Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know what to do. And it's really, it's not as hard as people like to make it. Um, but what are the, uh, the three top things that you would tell a fitness professional to focus on when they're programming for clients? How can they keep it simple yet effective? Yeah, the first thing I would say is that initial consultation and discussion with your client about where they've been, what they enjoy, wh where they want to get to, what their goals are, is by far the most critical factor. Um, it is so common for a trainer who likes body, like people don't become trainers unless they themselves love fitness. You know, it's like, how do I make it so I can be in a gym all the time? Oh, I know. I'll be like, that's all of us, right? And I think... <laughs> The first tendency, because it's the skill set you have, and you know that the book you just read and the certification you passed doesn't often give you the, like a totally new tool set that you're comfortable with in a term in terms of like hands-on applied knowledge. It gives you book knowledge that you get to turn into applied knowledge. But you, what you're going to do with them is if you know if you were an athlete in high school, you're going to mimic the S and C sessions. If you're a bodybuilder, they're going to be doing bodybuilding workouts. If you're a powerlifter, they're going to be doing powerlifting workouts. That's not terrible, but it's not it's not individualized, you know, um, you're trying to make everyone a little, a little mini, mini you. Right. Um, and I was, uh, guilty of that as well. R rather than that, what you really want to do is, is, is talk to them and figure out what are their goals. So you make sure that the training matches their goals and matches their personality. And you figure out like, let's be honest, most people don't like lifting. They don't like training. Um, that's why they're hiring you. If they really liked it, they would go on their own. They wouldn't yeah. need you. Um, sometimes people just need knowledge. Sometimes they might find, and hopefully this is actually the ideal that they do actually like training when it's introduced to them in a much, uh, in, in a different way from someone who can, who can mentor them into to finding the aspects they enjoy. But you really have to be open-minded when you start programming for people to make sure that you're not exposing them to the same kind of fitness stuff that they don't like doing and that they need you to, to have them there. So anyway, um, I think having a conversation with them about how much do they like variety? How much do they like, you know, sticking with some movements and really getting better at them? Um, how much do they like the feeling of sweating, getting a burn, a pump? Um, how much do they like feeling strong, feeling empowered, getting to, to, to move heavy weights? Um, are they intimidated by free weights? I think like all these questions and all of these, uh, these, these learnings as, as a trainer about what, what works well for the client and getting ongoing feedback is, is by far the most critical factor. Um, and from there, then it needs to be something that is relatively simple and you're giving them as much of you that you can of what they want while still giving them what they need. So certain fundamental elements like specificity, uh, can't be removed. Like if, if they, if they want to run a 5k, but all they want to do is lift heavy, you're going to have to figure out something around that to, to, to get them into aerobic shape. Um, likewise, if they have very specific fitness goals, but they love a ton of variation, you're going to have to think like, okay, well, what things do I really not vary too much? Like at least once a week, we need to be training the specific thing we're trying to get good at. Um, and you make concessions like that so that you are packaging, 
um, the 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 required variables that are going to get them to their goal in a personalized gift wrap of all the things that they enjoy and that will make them excited to come to the gym motivated uh, and enjoy the process and hopefully stick with it long term because that's really what our job is is to help people yeah. adopt a fitness lifestyle right mm -hmm. so that those aren't really super specific answers but I would say you know one is consult with the client and figure out what their goals are. Don't just kind of put your goals on top of them and what training style would best meet with that. Give them as much of what they want while still giving them what they need. And then over time, feedback with them and figure out, hey, is this working? How do, are you enjoying this? What aspects do you want to change? And I think it should be a highly collaborative process. So those would be like my three main tips. Notice I didn't say like, hey, you know, supersets or like do sets of three yeah. or, or choose the squats um, because all of that, all of that is potentially on the table, but will change drastically depending on, you know, the, the needs of the individual. Absolutely. And one thing that you said stands out to me because Dan says it all the time. What do you say? Give them what they want and then what they need. What's the percentages? Yeah. Yeah. Give them what they want or give them what they asked for and sneak in what they need. Yeah. Yeah. And so true. And I think a lot of people, Eric, they miss that first step they breeze through the consultation or the actual, they discount the actual communicating with the person or listening to them. And then you made another point. They like to throw their goals on top of the person. No, you're going to do it this way. Right. Well, what if I don't want to do it that way? Like I don't, yeah. I don't want to, I love training with my mom for that reason. Cause sometimes I'll have her do stuff. And she's 75, mind you. She came to my nice. theory class years ago when I used to coach and she was on the first treadmill. So I could talk to her. I was like, Hey mom on the mic. Hey mom, how you doing? Are you going to speed up? She looked at me and just said, Nope. <laughs> Yep, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm going to leave the alone. Yep. <laughs> and everybody laughed. But but yeah, like not everybody wants to do what we do. Not everybody wants to look like us, train like us, do the things that we want to do. And depending on what type of client you work with, and they definitely don't have your same goals. Um, and that's okay. Like I can still get you from point A to point B, but how would you like to do it? What makes the most sense for you, the person in front of you? That's great. I, I was absolutely brilliant, Eric. I mean, that three, four or five minutes of uh, tips that, you know, the, the three things you can do well, listening and, uh, you know, making sure they enjoy it and asking for feedback. That's freaking priceless. What's up guys. It's time for another ISSA rapid review. Tim had this to say about our transformation specialist course. I really enjoyed this course. I learned a lot and the course met my expectations. Well, we're glad to hear it, Tim. Thanks so much. So being that you're a researcher, you, you don't just practice with what you've learned, you're helping all of us learn more. So what's hot? What, what's, mm. what are you working on? And what are you seeing the industry as a whole kind of uh, saying, hey, we need to know more about this? That's a good question. Yeah, I think um, it is. Uh, well, first off, thank you. That's very kind. And I that is what I hope to do is is. Uh, engage in actionable research that uh, directly translates to what people are doing and hopefully positively influences, you know, people in gyms. And um, some of the things I'm working on right now are, are pretty cool. I have uh, a couple of master's students and uh, one recently completed uh, bachelor's of honor student. We're specifically looking at, I think this is super interesting, basically the effectiveness of nutrition coaches. So there's very little research out there on people working in the nutrition sector who are not like dietitians. You can actually find a uh, 
there's there's a meta-analysis on all the studies of dietitians working with people, and it shows that they, they seem to have a slight positive influence on augmenting the amount of weight loss. Um, and of course, that's not the most important thing about nutrition by any means, you know, long-term adherence, weight loss maintenance, health, you know, all that good stuff, uh, avoiding mental health problems, et cetera. But I think the, the issue is, is that if you were to grab the ran a random person on the street in any city in America who is currently trying to do weight loss, probably only one in 10 of them is working with a dietitian. Most of them are probably working with a trainer and that trainer may or may not be giving them nutrition advice. And that trainer may or may not be working within their scope of practice. Um, and that is what it is. And I think, you know, some people, their answer to that is, I think we need to be more heavy handed in, re in regulation. We need to be, you know, really bringing the hammer down on trainers. But I don't think, I, I think that's the market responding to a need. I think people are coming to trainers because they, they need help with this. They don't know how to do it. And trainers are doing the best they can. And sometimes they're put in a position where they might step outside of their, their scope. I don't recommend that they do that. I don't think trainers sure. should step outside of their scope. But I think we don't really know enough about this. There's been some work in this, but what my, 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 uh, these, these three students have been doing, one of them did a systematic review that is uh, going to be published probably later this year. It's really just looking at who are the various professions that are out there working with nutrition, uh, working with clients, and what does the research suggest that we know about that? And the answer to that systematic review, not to spoil the plot, is very little. We don't know a whole lot about how many people are working with these different types of practitioners. There's new professions like health coaches. You know, there's, so there's health coaches, there's personal trainers. Of course, there's dietitians. There's other allied health professionals. And the people who are probably being engaged with the most are the, are the professions we have the least amount of information on. And as you all know, there is a big difference between personal trainers. Like once you start to get into more regulated professions, you get a more homogenous skill set. There's a minimum standard of care, you know, among dietitians. They all have a dietetics accredited program in the States and they've done, you know, 300 hours. I forget what it is. And they have an RD credential that they have to keep up with. Mm -hmm. um, there's a big difference between a 19 year old who has a non-accredited certification that they did online and the person who has a... I like a doctorate and, you know, teaches at the, the community college on the weekends and also has some, some, and as a CSCS and they're, they're 45 and been training since they were 19 as well. Those are two highly different people, but they're both going to be on the census as a personal trainer. You know, I'm essentially still a personal trainer. And I think of myself compared to myself when I was 21. Yeah, and that's a whole good. ocean of difference in terms of my, my skill set. Literally. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I'm literally across the ocean. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it's a, it's a tough question of how can we actually help people get aligned with the best professionals? And that's not to say that, oh, we need all of them to start working with the dietitians because there's only going to be so many dietitians. It's a, it's a limited career. And many of them are working in, in non-weight loss uh, positions, you know, like, uh, hospital settings and things like that. Um, so what we, we've done with the two master students is we've done interviews. Uh, so qualitative interviews, getting qualitative information, as well as quantitative surveys of people who have worked with nutrition coaches and then of the nutrition coaches themselves to try to spur some further research down the line to better understand who are nutrition coaches, um, what things do they see? 
in the people who have successfully maintained weight loss long-term, what are they doing and what are the correlations we see between behaviors uh, and education levels and experience from both sides? So we've got the participants who are working with nutrition mm-hmm. coaches and we have the nutrition coaches themselves. And that's a uh, kind of early stages research. And this is something that um, Dr. Joe Klimczewski came to me and said, hey, this would be kind of cool to do, Eric. Um, you know, I've got this this, this body of, of, of clients who, who do this and, and, and coaches, and we think we're doing it the right way. So why don't we take a look at the quote unquote evidence-based nutrition coach and what are they doing? So that's one kind of cool thing. I think that is probably most relevant to the like general populace of clients, considering that the obesity epidemic hasn't slowed down, that there is still, if I had to guess, I would say that, say that like when I started as a trainer versus now, most of the clients who walk through the doors of a personal trainer's office are going to have a weight loss goal. Maybe I'm saying like 51% or more. I know there's plenty of people who have performance or health related goals, or maybe that's one of their goals, but not their primary one, but there's still a lot of people out there who are seeking weight loss. So I think that's one of the most relevant things top of mind right now, but all the other stuff is, is pretty niche. Uh, that, that we're doing here at AUT, like uh, the effect of different stretching protocols on powerlifting performance, whether uh, you know that has any potential positive uh, you know outcome or not. My uh, student now, Doctor Alyssa Joy Spence, she just finished her PhD on that. Nice. Uh, I've got another student, Ivan Yukic. Uh, he's from Croatia, and he is uh, looking at different ways of improving resistance training programming from uh, cluster sets to velocity-based training. Um, to uh, feedback. So just trying to improve some of the the tools we use. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on as far as what's hot right now, stepping outside of just, you know, the walls of AUT where I work. I think there's a lot of interest in, and again, when I say a lot, I mean within bodybuilding, within potentially better understanding uh, how exercises enhance hypertrophy and why range of motion uh, seems to be an important variable. So there's a, a relatively new spur of research right now. One is on exercise variation. There's been some studies that have come out looking at higher or lower levels of exercise variation, planned variation or random variation, and looking at both strength and hypertrophy, which is something that has been talked about and done for a long time, but it's been only rarely studied in the research. And I think it's it's a pretty broad topic, so I understand why it hasn't been researched, but I'm very curious as to um, how can we optimize that process? How can we improve uh, our exercise prescription? Like we know a bodybuilder is going to need more exercises than a powerlifter because they have more muscles that they, they care about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all of them. And we know that, uh, you know, there is a, a cost and a benefit to how specific you are as a powerlifter, but, but where's the inflection point? Where do you, and, and, and what time should you be doing the two? So that's pretty interesting as well as some of the research that suggests that uh, training at longer muscle lengths is probably the main reason why uh, uh, full range of motion training seems to be more effective for hypertrophy. It is that stretch position tension development that seems to uh, provide an additive effect to hypertrophy. So it's interesting. That means that some partials might make sense. Like Jenny, you and I are bodybuilders. We've all watched the, uh, the videos, the IFBB pros who like, you know, they're doing lat pull downs, but they, they only come to here, you know, yeah. and that's, that's different from doing like a shoulder press that starts from there and goes up mm-hmm. because for the lat pull down, now the lats in a stretch position. So you're not training through a full range of motion, but you are training in the stretch position and that might be fine, but you wouldn't want to do the shoulder press where you're avoiding 
putting the delt in a stretch position by only training yeah. from the top up. I've actually been experimenting that with, with that by myself. Yeah, like that, because I always hate coming down so low, but I'm like, mm. but it makes sense because that's a stretch. That's a, I literally said the same thing. It's a lengthened position for your deltoid and then it's contracted. And when you go all the way up and it fully extend your elbows, you're also engaging your rear delts. But the people that stop halfway up, your rear delts aren't doing much of anything. It's more your anterior and your uh, medial delt. Yeah, so I, I completely get that. Yeah. So it's, it, that's one of those things that you've seen in the trenches for a long time, you know, bodybuilders not locking out all the way on pressing mm -hmm. uh, or when they're doing, you know, pull downs or pull ups, not coming, not, not pulling themselves to the same height that say like a Marine would. Um, and, you know, I used to just kind of be like, these, these, these meatheads, you know, like, come on, like, go size, you know? Yeah. And, and, and now I'm kind of like, maybe they were observing things and then sticking with it and noticing they had like a better pump or sensation and they weren't wrong. And they were actually just spending more of their effort in a lengthened position. And, and damn it. Now I feel like a dummy, you know, but it's, so it's, 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 it's interesting stuff. Um, there's been various times in my career where like, it is like, Oh, the bros knew something. Other times it's like, wow, the bros are, really have a lot of eating disorders, you know, and then this is not necessary at all. And maybe we can make it easier. So it's, 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 you have to stay open-minded as a, as a researcher. That's the whole point, right. Uh, mm -hmm. To be open to new knowledge and to interrogate a, a question uh, with, with, you know, without any kind of, or minimizing the bias that you bring to the table. But anyway, those are just some things that are top of mind. And also that I've been working on, or I should say my students have been working on, I've been mentoring them through. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, there's a lot out there. And it's cool that you guys are working on some of that stuff. And I know you like to talk about it on your podcast. So speaking of, as we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you? We're going to link to your 3D Muscle Journey uh, website so people can check that out if they're interested in coaching or learning more about what you do there. But where else can we find you? Yeah, if you want to hear me blab for, for almost always longer than an hour, um, we don't even try to, to, to keep them to a reasonable length that you know <laughs> podcasting pros would suggest. Uh, we often go to two hours. You can check me at Iron Culture. Um, and that's on, on all platforms. And that's myself and Omar Isaf, nice. a good friend of mine. And we just really seem to have a, uh, a good vibe with each other. And uh, basically just started as a passion project back in 2018. We were like, hey, we should collab on something. What? And then Iron Culture was born out of that. And that's where we discuss the, the history, the science, and the culture of lifting um, with lots of insider jokes and much banter. So yeah, if you just come cold into your first Iron Culture episode, just do me a favor and listen to at least two so you don't feel like, what the hell are these people talking about for the first 20 minutes of every episode? That's true. I would definitely recommend starting from early on and then listen. Yes. I refer back to a lot of stuff. And like you mentioned before when we were we off air, like you've had a lot of guests back on two, three times. And if you weren't there for the first one, then it, what they're saying probably wouldn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Not only do we build upon the knowledge, but the bits that we have are also connected through time. So, um, yeah, if you, if you think that I'm not funny, um, you're going to hate that <laughs> podcast. That's all I have to say, because we definitely think we're funny to, to one another and we're the only people who care to one another. Uh, we don't do that podcast for anyone except ourselves. No, that's not true. We do it for the people, but it's, it's, a, it's a fun podcast. Um, we try to keep it lighthearted, but also address uh, serious con uh, concepts and context in depth. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's got something for people who like all aspects of lifting culture. So, yeah. That's awesome. Are you on social media at all? I am. Um, and it's mostly where I go to post to tell people to leave social media, to go to these other things, but Hey, uh, it's at Helms 3DMJ. 
somehow with that strategy of telling people to get off the Instagram platform, I've accrued uh, over 100,000 followers. It's, it seems to be somehow slowly working. Uh, of doing everything the opposite of what the algorithm wants of me. But uh, yeah, if you want to see me post when I've been on other podcasts, when monthly applications and strength sport articles come out uh, or, or random stuff like that, or when we've got new courses at 3DMJ, definitely follow me at, at Helms 3DMJ. Awesome. And I think you're funny. And it's not just necessarily what you say, it's how you say it. And being, I can see your face. Our listeners can't see us, but I can see your face right now. And it makes so much sense to me because I imagine you saying it with the smirk you have on your face right now, you say stuff like with a full stop period. And like, you mean it. <laughs> That's the funniest part. Like, I think you're hilarious. <laughs> so you, you can watch Iron Culture on YouTube. Maybe it's better that way. Oh, maybe. there you go. Yeah, maybe, I don't maybe. have time for that. I don't have, time for, I don't have the battery <laughs> life on my phone for that. I'd rather just listen Understood. to it in the car. <laughs> Understood. And you should not put your, your phone sideways in the car and watch it. That's a great way to die. So yeah. yeah. One million ways to die, right? That's one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Crashing. Crashing while listening to Iron Culture. There's worse ways to go. I know. I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Super excited again to meet you. My face hurts from smiling so much. Um, I'll be okay, though. Uh, <laughs> we appreciate you coming on. What time is it over there, by the way? Oh, it's a pleasure and honor. Great to meet you both. Thanks for having me on. And it is just coming up on uh, 9 a.m. So. Oh, oh, it's early. You're good. We're By the way, it's it's day. also Friday here. Let nice. that blow your minds. Lucky. Yeah. That's right. Still That's right. I'm a day ahead and I can tell you the future is bright. There you go. I love it. I love it. We'll see you in the future, right? That's right. I love it. Well, Dan, any last word for our listeners today? Yeah, I would say based on everything you heard and what you obviously have a great opportunity to learn following Eric and listening to his podcast, question when you hear, that's the way we've always done it. Question Mm -hmm. that. Because that's the way we've always done it. May or may not be correct. Or there may be other ways to do that exact same thing that your client may enjoy better. So question that and listen to the people who do the research and know what they're talking about, like Eric. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that. And uh, I would, yeah, expand upon that and say, yeah, like be in your bubble, whatever your bubble is, whatever your niche is, but make sure your bubble is flexible, right? Make sure it's clear. You can see outside of it and you can, you can, you know, take up new things, Um, be a sponge, not a rock. As we like to tell our athletes when they're learning new skills, be a sponge, don't be a rock. Um, But that's awesome. Great, great information. Definitely go check out his podcast. You guys, tons of episodes of so much fodder, so much for you guys to listen through. Um, You will never run out of uh, information. That's for darn sure. But I always like to leave you guys with the same piece of advice. You know what's coming. Make good choices. We'll be talking to you soon.